Father, thank you for the gifts we've already enjoyed. Worship through music, the warmth of friendship, seeing the blessings that you bestow on a family that is part of our congregation, the friends and family that have gathered around them to celebrate, give you thanks, make them feel welcome among us, let them know, Lord, that, that they are loved uh, just as the Carters are. And help us now as we look into your word that we may hear it, love you, and do what you ask. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning. How are you? I have some good news. I'll tell you more next week when all the women get back from Murrieta. And Pastor Jim said it, but, you know, please be mind and please be mindful and kind to dads that look hollow-eyed and tired and sympathetic to little girls who have four pigtails and all cockeyed and messed up. They're fed, they're clothed, they're safe, they're here. That is good enough for the, the many dads that are looking after little kids this morning. If you're here for the first time, my name is Bruce Garner, and along with a few uh, really special people from our church, I had the, the pleasure last night of going to Los Angeles with them and being part of a fundraiser for an organization that our church supports. It's called Saving Innocence. They have one of the most difficult callings I, I've ever witnessed. They send a specially trained caseworker to the police station when a child is rescued from a life of sex, of sex trafficking. And that night or that day, whenever the child is rescued, they begin providing wraparound care to that child. They're one of the local projects that we support that you generously gave to from your Christmas missions offering. And through the generosity of the church and one very large gift from an individual family, last week we distributed uh, some $80,000 around the world. So, sometimes because, because I, I have the, the personal relationships with these people, I get the words of thanks and, and the notes of gratitude and the prayer letter telling me what missionaries and places uh, like... Pakistan and Lebanon and Latin America where we also sent gifts. They tell me what happened, how it blessed them. Uh, it's a little unfair because we all together give and serve and love and sometimes I've just got a ringside seat to the good things that Jesus is doing through you. So I wanted to tell you and I'll tell you more next week about what your gifts are doing. Thank you very, very much. It is making a, an eternal difference as we give the good news of Jesus and show the love of Jesus right here in our own neighborhood and all the way uh, to the other side of the world. Thank you very much. Now then, here's a question, and I sure hope you do better than the 9 a.m. congregation did, okay? We had, a, we had an interesting 9 a.m. service. I nearly choked to death during the service. Not really, but just a little bit. Just enough to make people wonder, is he going to die right in front of us? And <laughs> Nobody seemed particularly to care. They just seemed interested, which was... A little hurtful, you know, but I, I'm a resilient person. I recovered. Here's the question I asked them and I have for you, and I, I, I'm, well, I'm just interested in your answer. If I could show you in plain English, in God's Word, the Bible, exactly what God wants you to do with your life, would you promise to do it? Yes. See? See what happened? <laughs> I asked a question that should be obvious, and there was a long pause. 
and then there was a nervous undercurrent of laughter, and finally one brave soul said, yes, that's really interesting because it's not the first time I've asked the question. I said, again, if I could show you in God's own word, in your own language, in writing, exactly what God wants you to do with your life, would you promise to do it? And the collective answer is, well, yeah, now, sure, <laughs> with a rehearsal. The actual answer is, well, start talking to us and we'll see. Did you hear it? Not the first time I've asked the question. I've asked it several times in the 14 years I've been here. The answer is always the same. It's a wait and see. We're from Missouri. You'll have to show us kind of thing. It's interesting. Because if you just take the, the hypothetical as an easy premise, that God has spoken directly and God isn't playing hard to get, he deserves to be loved and trusted. He intends to be loved and trusted. And he's told you what to do with the life that wasn't your idea. It's actually his gift to you. You didn't make it. Didn't depend upon you. It's your gift from him. Your stewardship for a brief time. He knows exactly what he wants you to do with it. And he's actually spelled it out. But... When asked specifically, if I show you, will you do it? There's always a little bit of reservation, and I understand it because I share it, and here's why. You love to do your own will, just like me. You think you're always right, don't you? Well, when you discover that you're wrong, you change your mind, and then you're, you're right again. That's the way everybody operates. That's why life can be so miserable. You're in a community with just in Huntington Beach about a quarter of a million people and every single one of them thinks they're right. And they argue about it and they sue each other over it and they call each other names usually on Facebook and it's just, it's an ugly clash of wills is what it is. And Paul in the book of Romans, that's where I'd like you to open your Bible or turn on your iPad or get your phone out or whatever it is that you do, but please open your Bible to the book of Romans and if you don't have a Bible, there will be one near you. Romans chapter 12. If you don't have a Bible, please take one home with you. And let me tell you what you're reading. You're reading somebody else's mail. You're reading a personal letter from the Apostle Paul to churches in the ancient city of Rome, the heart and capital of the Roman Empire of that time. You're dialing the clock back about 2,000 years, and an unlikely man is writing this letter, a man who hated the name and the cause of Jesus, is writing to Christians. Paul, the author, has become a Christian. He didn't believe a word about the resurrection of Jesus until he met Jesus personally. And from that point forward, everything turned around for him. And he has now spent the rest of his life through terrible suffering, imprisonment, persecution, frequent beatings, and eventually they'll kill him for it. But Paul won't take it back because he knows how Jesus, how real Jesus is. And he would literally rather die than recant, than retract his words and take them back. He won't do it. 
And he's writing congregations in the city of Rome to tell them the good news. And if you had kind of this desert island exercise where you couldn't have a whole Bible, but you were given a single book out of it, many people would choose the book of Romans as the one book they would take with them to remind them of essentially everything God wants, distilled down into 16 chapters in this one little letter. By the time you get to Romans 12, Paul's going to make a turn and tell them, here's what I want you to do. Here's what God wants from everything I've told you in the previous 11 chapters. The word therefore and the word for, which is a stand-in for the word because, is going to appear throughout this short little passage I'm going to try to explain to you. And here's a Bible reading tip. Anytime you see the word therefore, you should ask yourself what it's there for. And everybody understands that. Therefore, points to a conclusion. It points to an application, to something that has to happen now. And since we won't look at the whole book, let me tell you what it is. It is the proclamation of the good news of Jesus, which I'm glad to remind you of. It says things like this. It says something that people know is true, even if they don't believe the Bible's explicit language about it. It says that there's not a righteous person on earth, that every single person sins, that people rebel against God, defy God, ignore God, each in different ways, but every single human being that God made is separated from him. And because of that, God, who is a righteous judge, is rightfully, understandably, perfectly angry about it. And I'll just tell you, that's a hard concept in our culture. I don't know if you've noticed, Americans are an angry bunch now. And everybody's allowed to be angry except God. It's the strangest thing in the world. You start saying that God is just and that God will punish. People say, I don't believe in that. I believe in a God of love. I do too. The Bible explicitly says God is love, but a great part of being loving is the capacity to be angry at the right things. Last night at this organization that rescues children from the worst thing that can be done to them, occasionally someone from law enforcement or law enforcement was referred to, and we were told of a guy who caught 180 years to life. Think about that sentence. You know what people did? They clapped. And they were right. That justice is right. And Paul is stepping back with the privilege of reviewing the whole story of God in the book of Romans and putting it all down in a single letter. He is saying God made the world to love and serve him, but we chose our own way. We sinned, and the wages of sin, he says in Romans, is death. What sin brings and what sin deserves is always the same. It is death. Everything you do outside of God's will will be fatal. All of it. God who is life knows the path to life, and every time that path is ignored, the result is always the same, death. It's not always immediate, but it is certain. It will bring death. You don't honor God in your marriage, you'll kill your marriage. You don't honor God with your mind, with your soul. You don't honor God with your money. You don't honor God with your health. Wherever you choose to dishonor God, the result will always be the same. It will be suffering and it will be death. But into that tragedy stepped Jesus Christ, 
who took the penalty of sin upon himself. And Paul explains the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. In other words, you haven't come to one more religious group telling you their chosen path to get back to God. That's not what the Christian church is. The Christian church is a place where people gather to remember and thank God and love him and worship him because of good news that he is announcing, which is this, you can't save yourself, so Jesus came to do it for you. You're dead in your sins already. You may not even know it because here's something about dead people. They don't realize they're dead. They don't know it. Others around them suffer. The dead do not know that they're dead. That's the spiritual effect too. One of the problems of the world and one of the world reasons the world is so disordered and always has been is people are separated from God, spiritually dead, and thinking they're alive and following their own will, which clashes and brings pain and anger and suffering and violence and every ugly thing that has ever hurt your heart. It's all a result of sin. And what God did instead, for his, because of his great love for us, he traded our sins for his righteousness. Jesus absorbed the anger, the punishment, the righteousness of God in your place to lovingly give you instead his own life, which is why in Romans 8, Paul goes on to say that there is nothing in the world not death, not life, nothing in the world, no created thing anywhere can ever separate you from the faithful love of God in Christ. Awesome. Eleven solid chapters of grace, mercy, goodness, gospel, in other words, good news announced, which the Romans have now believed. And now Paul's going to turn and say, so here's what we're going to do about that. And the passage in the first two verses is probably very familiar to you. Romans 12, verse 1. Here's the first part of God's will for you. It says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. That's a heavy way to start. He's begging them on the basis of the mercy of God. Grace is something that God gives you that you don't deserve. Mercy is something God gives you to spare you from something you do. How has God loved you both with grace and mercy? He has spared you your just desserts. He has given you blessings that you have not earned and do not deserve. And now Paul says, on the basis of that mercy, of everything I've just been explaining to you about this good news... I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Whoa. Holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. On Sunday mornings, I have the privilege of teaching, preaching to you from the Bible, meaning I do most of the talking, but certainly one of the things we want to do and we take time to do is to try to teach you to study the Bible. Here's today's exercise. Look at verse 1 and see if you can figure out 
explicitly what Paul is telling them God wants them to do. Okay. It's true. What is it that he wants you? You don't have to tell me. You don't have to tell your neighbor. See if you can puzzle it out. What is he asking you to do yourself? I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your what? As a what? No wonder you were reluctant to say you didn't necessarily want to do what God's will is. That's kind of heavy. What's it mean? That's a living sacrifice anyway. How do you present your body a living sacrifice to God? Well, remember, Paul is in the ancient world. He is very well acquainted from the Hebrew scriptures of Jewish sacrifices, all of which pictured that Jesus would someday come and be the sacrifice. God's substitute. In the ancient world, sacrifices were common as well. Paul is saying, on the basis of the good news that I've told you, here's what I want you to do now. I want you, in relationship to God, to show up in your body. In other words, actually present, not conceptual, not intellectual, not emotional. I want you to actually physically surrender your will to God to sacrifice to him and you're not going to die in the process you're going to be a living sacrifice and that Paul says is your spiritual worship in other words it's thoughtful it's reasonable it's right it's what God deserves it's still not very clear Jesus was once asked this big book of Hebrew scriptures what we call the Old Testament what the greatest commandment was and he answered that the greatest commandment was to love God with everything you've got. Heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then he gave them a bonus. Always a bonus with Jesus. He says the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. If God is God and he really is who I've been telling you, in other words, he's the one that made you and everything else, the only reasonable thing the only thing that makes sense with a God like that is for you to surrender your will to him. In other words, for you to show up in actual real life. That's why Paul says present your bodies. Don't just sign a card and make an intellectual abstract agreement that God's going to run the show. No, you show up and you tell him, my will doesn't matter anymore. I'm here to do what you want. And it's a living sacrifice because it's a sacrifice. It's difficult. Because I don't know if you've noticed, you don't particularly like anybody telling you what to do. Have you noticed? And that self-will is so strong that it even extends to God. And if someone sometimes tells you this is what God wants, you say, well, that's what you say. You're just using God to control me. <laughs> it's ugly. No, there is a God who loves you, who has acted in history, who has sent his son to die for your sins, and now he says your part is to surrender. In love to say, God, I'm going to do what you want. I'm going to love you and trust you in this way. I'm going to show up not as a partner 
or a negotiator. I'm going to show up as the only reasonable worship, the only spiritual worship is just to say, you're in charge, which is so hard for everybody. We've got this stupid bumper sticker, God is my co-pilot. Think about that. If God is willing to get in the car with you, are you really going to tell him you'll drive? It's ridiculous. Just one of these little funny, almost not worth mentioning in a sermon, cultural expressions of the battle that Paul is representing here. Here's the first thing that God wants for you. Here is the first part of his will. Number one, we worshipfully surrender to God. We present ourselves personally, all in, all committed, and God will find that decision, that act of surrender, Paul says in verse 1, that will be holy to him. It will be acceptable to him. He will receive that as spiritual worship. But here's the battle. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. There's a word play there. As you surrender to God, as you decide to love and trust Him more than you love and trust yourself, and you put Him in charge, and it's a sacrifice, meaning you're going to be all in, because the point of the old ancient sacrifices is they burned up. A sacrifice on an altar wasn't just something that was given and then taken back. It ceased to exist. It was consumed. And that's the trouble. Someone said a long time ago, I was reminded between services, the trouble with living sacrifices is they keep crawling off the altar. Do you ever tell God you're in charge and then take it back? God has told you in a difficult relationship, men, if I could speak to you for a moment, if you're married, God has told you to love that woman the way Jesus loved the church and gave himself for her. And that was awesome for the first six months. But then you discovered she didn't always see it your way. She could be difficult. She could be demanding. She could fail to admire you and respect you. And instead of loving her sacrificially, you made a deal. And you say, you you start loving me and respecting me, and I'll love you back. You don't have sacrifice. You have a negotiation. And there's a war on between transforming your mind, renewing your mind by being in surrender to God, and Paul says, being conformed to this world. Here's what he means by conformed. See, I just took this powerless little piece of paper and conformed it to the shape of my right hand. I put pressure on it on the outside and crushed it. That's what the world apart from God is doing to you every day. Have you felt the pressure? Have you heard and felt the tension between knowing what God wants and thinking how that's going to play out in the real world? That's pressure. And Paul says in verse 2, do not be conform to this world, this world system, this fallen culture. Don't be crushed by it. Don't be reshaped by it. In Paul's language, the idea of being conformed is that you take an outward shape that does not represent the inward reality of who you are now that you are in Christ. And that is a plague upon the church, and that kills our witness. When we look and act like something other than what Jesus died to make us, we're neutralized. We're ineffective. 
He says, instead, be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing, in other words, by everyday experience, by actual daily experience, you may discern what is the will of God and you'll find that it's good and acceptable and perfect. And here's the point, church. We worshipfully surrender to God. No one can do this for you. If you know Jesus, you're as surrendered to God as you've chosen to be. Tozer said, every man is as holy as he wants to be. Your proximity to God, your likeness to Christ, if you're in Christ, if you've understood and believed this gospel, if you remember the day that Jesus saved you and you've been walking with Jesus ever since, you're as much like him as you've chosen to be. You've stood like me at the path between being conformed and being transformed and you've made a series of choices and your present spiritual experience is what it is. It's the result of those choices. You are who you've been becoming in Christ. Nobody can do this for you. You have to decide. But then there's more which I really hadn't read in connection to the first two verses. Look at verse 3. It says, for by the grace given to me, in other words, Paul is saying, I have a grace, I have a gift from God, and on the basis of what God has graced or gifted me to be, to do, I say to everyone among you, he's been talking to them individually about their need for surrender to God. Now he's going to continue by telling them to do something difficult. Look, by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. That's hard, have you noticed? Everybody thinks they're better than they are until they get some experience with whatever it is that they're doing. That's why every little boy is going to play in the big leagues. That's why I used, as a little boy, I used to toss a football toward my bed and lay out to land on the bed, not the floor, because that would hurt. And I won endless Super Bowls for the Dallas Cowboys by making fingertip grabs on the far end of the mattress. I thought for a while that I maybe could play for them someday until I met real football players and I got my reality adjusted. Paul is saying to these Christians in churches, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. In other words, Paul says, each one of you needs to have a humble, accurate self-assessment of who you are and what you can do, and not to think that you're better than you are. This is so common, it's been named in psychological literature. You can look it up later, it's hilarious, don't do it now. But there's something called the Dunning-Kruger effect, named for the two psychologists who put it in the literature, and it is this simple human idea. The less you know about something, the more likely you are to think you'd be great at it. We're going to remodel the house. How hard could that be? <laughs> well, anybody who's ever done it can tell, will tell you. It's incredibly hard. Ah, we're going to get married. How, how are you going to live? We're going to live on love. Oh, boy. Yeah, okay. <laughs> you ever notice how judgmental and self-righteous sometimes people who don't have kids can be toward those who do? Why don't they teach that kid to behave? Well, 
It's a good idea. They should, but you, you try it. Have you tried it? It's hard. It's incredibly hard. I had an Army recruiter tell me once, bitterly, we were all going to be Green Berets. Think about that. <laughs> Everybody's coming in to be a Green Beret. Very few of them are going to make it. Good old Dunning-Kruger effect. It carries over into the spiritual life. The only way you can get an accurate assessment of who you really are, where you really are in your relationship with Jesus, and what God has called you to do is with the help of other people. You are not a good judge all by yourself of your capacities. By the grace given to me, in other words, Paul's intervening, he's helping them, he's coaching them. I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. In other words, God has given every one of you a capacity to trust God. Some of you trust him more readily than others, but all of you can trust him. And you need to take a good, clear-eyed assessment of who you are and figure out what you, where you are with Christ and what you've been gifted to do. Because he says in verse 4, notice the next word, for, this is all tied together. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members, what's it say? One of another. Here's the most un-American part of the sermon. Because there has never been a culture like ours. We have made life fiercely individualistic. Your everyday life is customized around you. Right down to the fast food level. Burger King used to make a promise. You can have it your way. Not his way. He's stupid. Don't, don't ignore him. You can, you can have it your way. And especially with things that are bespoke, that are made just for you, with the way you can craft your experience, your news sources, everything through the use of the internet, you've got a whole culture telling you the most important person is you. And people will say, you do you. You do you, boo. <laughs> Every one of you, just do what you want. Can we step back for a second and assess where everybody doing what they want has brought us? How are things going? Miserably. And the reason for that is every person on earth needs to be saved by Jesus. And once you're in Christ, you not only belong to him. Here's the second part of God's will. Here's what Paul has been saying. We need to humbly accept that we need one another. You can't assess where you are and what you can do and where you need help without the help of other people. None of you have ever achieved anything in life. I have achieved nothing in life without the help and the blessings and the grace of other people poured into my life. Anything you've ever thanked me for that I've done well, that is a long line of people behind me, most of whom you don't know, who have loved me and served me and corrected me and gotten in my face and told me all kinds of things, some wonderful to hear, some very hard to hear. It takes a body, which is Paul's exact point. If you'll look at this, please. 
Verse 5, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. What I'm trying to tell you is this, belonging to Christ means that you belong with other Christians. That you can't have an individualistic experience and be in God's will. And he'll go into this picture in much more depth in 1 Corinthians 12, if you want to read that later. But here's the word picture. The head of the body is who? If you know, the head of the body is Christ, not the pastor, Christ. He's the head of the body. He directs it. He is the center of its life and its direction. Everybody else under the body is tied to him, united to one another, and we are individually members of the body. We belong to him and we belong with and to one another. And in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul creates this absurd situation to picture what the Corinthian church was actually doing. They were arguing with each other about their gifting and envisioning various parts of the body saying, well, I'm not getting what's right or I don't, I'm not serving the way I'd like to, I'm out of here. In the first service, I had the tiniest catch in my throat. My throat shut down. I started coughing a little bit. Got really awkward and really uncomfortable because everybody looked at me like, could this be it? He has aged a bit since he's come to the church. This, this could be it. And all that happened was one tiny part of my body, namely my throat, got the slightest catch in it and boom, everything shut down, couldn't speak. It arrested the attention of everybody. Hopefully there was some prayer offered, I'm not sure, it sure didn't feel like it. But see, in the physical world, this is very understandable. The only reason this is working on any level is because my entire body is cooperating to help me teach this sermon, and your entire body is cooperating so that you can hear it. If you suddenly lost your hearing, if you went stone deaf just like that in the middle of this, you would stop caring about everything else. And once you realized you were stone deaf, you would leave this room and seek medical attention. And you would sure hope that the doctor wouldn't say, well, what are you worried about? You can still see, can't you? <laughs> now, in physical life, if a single part of your body is not contributing, is not cooperating, is not doing its giftedness, is not doing its part, it's a crisis. In the average local church, it's typical. And Paul says, we need one another. We've each been given gifts. And look now, in closing, to the very important part. Verse 4. As in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. In other words, God in His grace has given every member of a local church different gifts, a different place, a different contribution to make. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. What's it say next? Let us what now? Let us use them. Thank you, Dennis. Dennis is often ahead of me, if not right with me. The point of your gift is to use it. That's going to be part of your reasonable worship back to God. Your gifts were no more your decision than your own life. 
along with life in Christ, you were given at least, almost everybody, I'm convinced, was given several gifts through which to contribute to the others. And the great misunderstanding of the contemporary church that we have created on this side of the world is that a few called people put on some kind of production, everybody else comes in and listens and supports it, and then everybody goes home to do whatever they want. Does that sound like what Paul's describing here? Not for a moment. He's talking about a group of people who all love the Lord so much that they've surrendered to Him. They understand that they are united together. And though they have very differing capacities and needs, they're going to stick with Him and stick with one another. And they're going to give to each other individually whatever is in their hands for the proper service of each person. And that's what's beginning to happen at Crosspoint. That's been the most exciting thing I've ever seen in my ministry. Here's an example. Literally a year ago, we became concerned for marriages in our church, so we invited a man named Matt Lair to teach us about marriage and to train up some couples to mentor people before they got married and in the middle of marriages, especially if it was getting hard. It's called marriage mentoring. It's not counseling, it's not therapy, it's mentoring. We trained up a whole bunch of people, and then for about a year, absolutely nothing happened. And one of the gifted couples that God had burdened in the Maturity of their marriage of over 50 years, I believe. They told me just a month ago, Bruce, if we don't get some people in, this whole thing's going to die because we got people sitting in the bullpen ready to mentor and no mentees. So we prayed about it. And then God opened the floodgates. And then we had a separate problem. We were having a hard time keeping up and giving enough people mentorship. We were delayed in getting people the help that they needed. That's what I'm telling you. It's a slice of ordinary life in an ordinary church. It's messy. It's difficult. It takes too long sometimes. But God moved in the heart of Joe and Carolyn Shirley along with a few other leaders in the church and collectively people were trained up. And now I'm told of a young couple far from here. They heard about it way north in L.A. County. But somehow they found out about it. They were separated. They were physically living apart. Now they're back together and their marriage is on its way to healing and strength. Why? Because a few gifted people who you've never met, who will probably never be on this stage, never have their name in the bulletin, God brought them through a whole lifetime of experience and difficulty. And the couple that mentored them has been through deep waters. And they were able to tell a young couple, hold on to our hand, hold on to the hand of Jesus, and let's go in that direction. And now, it's not perfect, it's not over, but it's a whole lot better. That's the body serving one another. Because, number three, and this is the end of the sermon, once we surrender our will to God and we accept that part of God's will is that we belong to others, we then begin to serve others with the gifts that God gave each of us. And Paul gets practical in the last three verses. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. And then he reels out a list. It's not comprehensive. There are other lists in the New Testament. He's just explaining. He's just giving a few examples. If prophecy, in other words, if speaking forth God's word in proportion to our faith. If service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Did you notice how simple and direct God's word is? 
God says, if God has gifted you to teach, what should you do? What if you're a great teacher and a terrible leader? You didn't, don't lead, just teach. What if you have the capacity of administration and leadership? Then Paul says, do that with zeal. Embrace that. If God has given you the gift of mercy, here's, look how practical, look how practical the Bible is. People who extend mercy on a daily basis experience what people call compassion fatigue. You only have so much empathy to give, and then you wear out. So Paul says, if you have the gift of mercy, in other words, if you have this gift of sparing people from trouble that they deserve by standing in and taking it into yourself, if you have the capacity, the special gift from God to be merciful to people, do it cheerfully. Don't get bitter. Be careful not to burn out. You'll be a miserable pe person to people who need your mercy. Now, no Christian is exempt from any of this. Every Christian is called upon to, for instance, show mercy. Every Christian is to be a generous giver. But there are some people that are especially gifted to lead, to teach, to give. And whatever it is, that God has given you to do, Paul would say, whatever God gave you to do, you do it. See, you do you's half right. Yes, you do you, but you do it for the glory of God and the good of the people around you. That's what makes an eternal difference. And I'll be really, really practical. In two weeks, two Sunday nights from now, we're going to have this thing called the serve class. And that's just going to be another very normal human endeavor. Some of you are thinking about finally stepping up and putting yourself in a circle of people that can help you figure out humbly where you are and what you can give. But you don't really want to because you're kind of into your own thing and you've got your habits and Lord knows you have enough to do. May I suggest to you that these verses imply and directly state rather that every Christian is called? Some are called to public vocational ministry. That's my calling. It may not be yours, but you were saved, you were called, you were gifted, and if you don't give it back to God in worship and humbly well, give it to others, you'll waste your gift. And someday, if you're a Christian, you will stand before Jesus, and I don't know how he'll communicate, but I think it'll sound something like this, oh, you thought that was all for you? You thought my grace, my mercy, my gifts to you, you thought that was all for you, for your career alone? You didn't see the people around you? The capacity of this church has yet to be seen because what God wants, here's God's will. God's will is for us to be surrendered to him and serving others. And if you're truly surrendered to him, you will be serving others. Those two things are together. That's why these verses, in all my years of reading Romans 12, I had kind of compartmentalized verses 1 and 2 and thought that the main thing for a Christian was to surrender to God. I never noticed the because, the for, in the very next verse saying that my individual surrender to God will lead me right into humble service to other people. It's been there all along. It's just not all about you. It's about you surrendering to him and serving others. Let's pray.
Lord, now it's, now it's decision time. People have to decide for themselves what they will do with the word that they have heard. We're going to give an offering as well. People will make in this room and maybe later online, however they choose to do it, they'll make decisions about what to do with the money you've given them. May we all be worshipful. May you all take us a step further. We're not all in the same place. We're in different seasons and in different seats around your table. But may every person here who knows you as Savior, Jesus, take the next step with you. And if there is a single person here who does not know you as Savior, may they remember your word in the first part of the sermon as I tried to explain that it was the death of Jesus in their place to forgive their sins that was offered. That they cannot save themselves. They need only look to Jesus and say, Jesus, I'm one of those sinners you died for. I'm far from you. I've killed things in my life because of my sin and selfishness. I'm sorry, please save me. If there's one or if there's many, Lord, I pray that you would speak to them and save them. And as we sing these songs, give these offerings. Take the card, Lord, and, and maybe with a little hesitation. Signal on a card that we're going to do something. We're going to show up at a class. We're going to make ourselves available to you and to others. Receive all of this as worship in Christ's name.